Hi, I'm David Ross, and welcome to episode 17 of The Sun's Israel's War on Terror podcast. In what seems like another huge month of developments in the conflict, Hamas leader and October the 7th mastermind Yahya Sinwar has been seen on video running through a terror tunnel with his children. That footage, unseen until recently, but believed to be from October, was published just days after two hostages were rescued by Israeli special forces in Rafah. Despite that, amid fears Hamas will use the huge numbers of civilians there as human shields, Israel is being asked by some members of the international community to pause a planned offensive in the city. Middle East commentator Hilal Fuld says the IDF needs to push ahead and wipe out Hamas. Hilal knows firsthand what life is like after losing a loved one to terror. His brother Ari was murdered by a Palestinian terrorist in 2018. Ari was a was a very strong Israel supporter online and offline, and he really, you know, fought for the the Jewish people and the state of Israel his entire life. He, you know, volunteered for the IDF and continued to climb the ranks of the IDF, and uh, you know, he was a real hero. And so, you know, when when you unfortunately tragically lose a loved one to terror, you're kind of forced into a club that no one wants to be a part of. But if before you know that horrible day, um, I let's call it I promoted Israel to tech, right? I'm a tech guy. Uh, it wasn't, let's call it, direct Israel, but it was underlying Israel, right? Under under the tech uh, promotion, it was really me promoting Israel. Especially since October 7th, I've really, quote-unquote, taken off the gloves and gone all in on Israel. And so, uh, really, I'm 100% focused now on defending Israel online, fighting misinformation, uh, you know, and providing, let's call it, our people with some, uh, with some optimism and hope because we're all in deep mourning and devastation. Beyond the atrocities of October the 7th, themselves, how upset and agitated, irritated, disappointed are you in some of the commentary and coverage on what has happened since in terms of how Israel and the IDF's military campaign in Gaza has been explained? Well, you know, on the one hand, on October 8th, the day after that horrible day, I kind of was looking for some silver lining. And I told myself, at least now the world will clearly stand with Israel. I mean, there's no scenario in which they live stream the atrocities and the world denies it. That obviously can't happen. And yet here we are, you know, a few months later. It didn't take very long. And so on the one hand, it's, you know, very disappointing. On the other hand, it's not surprising. We see, you know, the double standard and the hypocrisy and the blatant anti-Semitism throughout our history. I and mean, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, you know, maybe it's a little bit more extreme with that the fact, again, that they live streamed it and how do you deny something that you see before your eyes? But the reality is the, the level of hypocrisy and just absurdity is, is staggering. I mean, the complete, you know, uh, ignorance and lack of care about the actual truth, like real facts, uh, you know, anything from, you know, the occupation, which, you know, Israel evacuated Gaza in 2005. What occupation? Like, you know, there's no... There's no need for facts, and, and truth is no longer a virtue when it comes to Israel. It's, it's it's really unbelievable to watch. But you know, I we have to kind of stick to the truth and and do our do our best to help you know spread the fact that the people, or I should say, the organization that we're fighting, Hamas, is really the forces of evil. Obviously, with Iran fund, funding them and all of the the different fancy names for the same radical Islamic terrorists, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas and ISIS, it's all the same stuff. Uh, you know, they are the forces of darkness in this world. And putting aside the, let's call it, Jew hatred or the bias against Israel and the Jewish people, it's objectively a fact to say that the Jewish people have brought light to this world, whether it's, you know, the Nobel Prizes or 
you know, cutting edge technology that, that that's curing cancer and other things. So the way I see it, this is the forces of light versus the forces of darkness. And it's really a clash of civilization, right? It's the the, the world of radical Islam against the, the, the civilized Western world. And so, you know, the fact that there's, you know, there, there, there are people marching in the streets in democratic countries, you know, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. It's, it's absurd on a different level. So it is disappointing, but it's not surprising. It's also not surprising then that the allegations that have been made against UNRWA, for example, have been so shocking. I mean, you know, I, I know that you have to say allegations. I don't. I mean, we, we know the facts. So there's no there's no there's no debating it at this point. I mean, you know, under un, under their headquarters, like you can't make this stuff up under UNRWA headquarters, a multi-million dollar terror tunnel that it literally, literally takes the electricity from UNRWA headquarters. And yet they deny that they knew. I mean, like, you know, you, you have to laugh. You, you can't help but laugh. It's, it's absurd on a different level. And. You know, UNRWA, we've been saying, we as, you know, the, the Israeli government, the Israeli, we knew this for decades, right? We've been saying it, we've been telling everyone who will listen and no one listened. And, you know, the fact that Hamas uses human shields and fires from within schools and, and, and mosques, we've been saying it for years, no one listened. And now we have, you know, we have hard evidence that it's undeniable. But, you know, I think it's not just UNRWA. I think that that's just a symptom of a much deeper disease. And that deeper disease is the disguise of anti-Semitism in our generation, because in every generation it has a new disguise, a new mask. In our generation, it's anti-Zionism, right? It, you know, like, you can't be anti-Zionism without being anti-Jewish any more than you could be anti-Jesus without being anti-Christian. Like, it, Judaism, you know, is, the core element of Judaism is Zion, right? It's Zionism. And you can't you can't say that the Jewish people don't deserve one ten, tiny little, you know, dot on the map, because that's just too much without saying you're anti-Jewish, right? So, you know, UNRWA is just, you know, one symptom of a, of a much deeper, deeper sickness. And, you know, radical Islam and specifically Gaza is, you know, another, I don't know if you want to call it patient or, you know, they're a victim, I should say. The innocent people in Gaza are the people that are not supporting uh, Hamas, which sadly is a very, very low percentage. They're, they're real victims of, of radical Islam. And it's, it's, it really is tragic. But, uh, you know, the, the, the Palestinian people elected Hamas. Uh, they knew what they were getting into. We see thousands and thousands of quote-unquote innocent Gazans who took part in October 7th. And even if you want to say that that's anecdotal, they did it, you know, we have polls, right? 90% or at least close to 90% of, of Gaza is proud of October 7th. So we're talking about a society that's rotten to the core and, and is deeply indoctrinated. And, you know, you know, I know many people take offense to the, the comparison to Nazi Germany, but you can't help but compare it to Nazi Germany, and we know what has to happen. We have to denazify Gaza. That's what has to happen. Anything left than that will just bring another October 7th, and it's not like they're hiding it. They say it loud and clear. We want to do October 7th over and over and over again. So the fact that there's anybody, but literally a single human being in the Western world that is standing with Hamas is preposterous. There's no other way to say it. How could you, with liberal progressive values, stand with an organization that murdered, raped, kidnapped, disfigured. I mean, I don't need to tell you about the atrocities. How could a human being with a conscience and a heart and a mother and father stand with people like that? It boggles the mind. And one of those people calling for October 7th to be repeated and repeated is the October 7th mastermind, Sinwa. What's your reaction to the footage the IDF posted of Sinwa hiding in one of those terror tunnels with his family? It's it's unbelievable to me that anybody, let alone millions of people, view this man as a hero. This is a man who is like a sewer rat, sewage rat, is literally hiding 
jumping from terror tunnel to terror tunnel after having stolen billions of dollars from his own people, right? It, it doesn't get more, more cowardly than him. And, um, you know, Israel obviously is going to eventually have to eliminate him. Uh, there's no question about that. It's not a question of it. It's a question of when. But just seeing that, how he takes his little children and, you know, is going, you know, from tunnel to tunnel. By the way, important to mention that Sinwar had a lethal um, uh, brain tumor that Israel operated on and saved his life. I mean, you, you don't get more deranged and twisted than that man. And so Israel is going to take him out. The world will be that much safer. For now, let him run and, you know, from, from tunnel to tunnel. He can't hide. We know where he is. And the fact that he's surrounding himself by hostages, again, how cowardly can you get? Hero, this guy is the world's biggest coward. As this military operation continues, Israeli forces are looking at a potential offensive in Rafah. There are obviously a huge amount of Palestinians who have been moved to that area, and the international community is amping up pressure on Israel to pause and take a moment before they go in. What's your response to that pressure, and why are they wrong? I mean, it's, it's, it's a blatant display of double standard, right? I mean, really? You're telling us after we just went in there and rescued two hostages that were being held, and I want to emphasize this, in a civilian's home, like literally in a family. Can you imagine your family abducting innocent people and keeping them for four months? It's up, like I said before, it's rotten to the core. And so the fact that we haven't even started and we already rescued two hostages from Rafa shows you what, you know, what, what Rafa is, and it's the last stronghold of Hamas, and everyone knows that. Hamas knows it. The world knows it. And so... You know, the fact that there's anyone pressuring Israel not to go in there is it's, it's pathetic. It's really pathetic. And, you know, you know, you've you got to compare it to other wars, right? I mean, imagine, you know, co coming to the United States after 9-11 and saying, hey, you know, poor, you know, poor Afghans. You can't go into Afghanistan. You got give me a break, right? Poor, poor Germans and Nazis. Come on. Like, wars are tragic. People die in wars and it's tragic. But Israel didn't want this war. Israel was forced into this war. And now Israel needs to do what it needs to do and should have done a long time ago. But, you know. I hope and pray that our government has, you know, the courage to stand up to that that pressure because the the, the fact that there's anyone pressuring Israel to not go in there is is just a it's it's completely morally bankrupt and twisted. This has been what has kind of happened all along during this military campaign. The criticism has come before the response, October the seventh. They're already chastising Israel for an action that they haven't begun yet. And the same appears to be happening with regard to Rafa. Yeah, it's again, it's a display of, you know, I really hate calling it anti-Semitism. I don't like pulling that card, but there really is no logical explanation other than, you know, pure Jew hatred. I mean, how could you tell someone, meaning how could you tell a government or a country that experienced October 7th and the atrocities and the horrible tragedy and the darkest day in the history of Jewish people since the Holocaust? How do you have the audacity, whoever you are, whether you're European countries or Biden or anyone else, how do you have the audacity to come and pressure us not to achieve complete victory over Hamas when we know what Hamas is? It's not like they hide it. It's not like they're saying, oh, you know, we only hate Israel, we love America. What, you think West is a net? Of course the West is. They say it. And the irony of it all, the whole thing, the irony of the entire conflict is that the very same people who are saying, you know, the Palestinians, they don't mean it. Don't take them seriously. Don't hold them accountable. Are the very same people who are saying that the Palestinians deserve a state. Make up your mind. Are they an actual nation and a people that deserve a state? If so, they need to be held accountable for their words and actions, a.k.a. their support of terror. And if they're not a people and they're just a bunch of little kids, you know, throwing a tantrum, then who's going to give a kid throwing a tantrum a state? So, you know, like, make up your mind. And that's just one example of hundreds of examples of just blatant hypocrisy and double standards as it, you know, pertains to this war and the conflict in general.
What is more disappointing in terms of this response? Is it the masses of idiots on the street who have never been to the region who say they're pro Hamas or pro Houthi or whatever it happens to be? Or is it more upsetting where you think, well, this guy has clearly been highly educated, whether he is hard left or, or, or whatever. Is it more disappointing from an intellectual anti-Semitic standpoint? I think option C is the answer. Option C is otherwise moral people, intelligent, moral people. Many examples. I'm not going to name names, but just to give you one example, that naming a name is one of the top investors in Silicon Valley, very widely regarded as one of the top investors in the world, blatant anti-Semite. I mean, tweeting things like Israel's, you know, I don't even, I can't even repeat the things that he says. It's just, it's horrible. And so how do you, a moral person, kisses your mother with that mouth, let those words out of your mouth, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's pathetic to see the indoctrination of Gen Zers. It's pathetic to see the indoctrination of academia. And it's pathetic to see otherwise moral people go completely immoral when it comes to the Jews. How could a person with, a, again, person with morality, with any sort of moral compass, how on earth is there ever a scenario, I don't care what scenario, in which you justify beheading babies? Like, have you lost your mind? So that's the reality we live in. And it's not something we would ever see, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't Jews on the receding end. It's, it's, it's tragic, but it's not new. In terms of that, the radicalization that is required, how does that work? once Hamas are wiped off the face of the earth? I mean, that's a great question. That's a million-dollar question, right? What happens the day after? Well, first of all, the day after, Israel is going to have to, you know, go through our own process because this entire country is in deep trauma. Uh, so we're going to have to handle that. But as far as Gaza is concerned, there there has to be a complete and utter denoctification of Gaza, nothing less than that. You cannot, you know, expect a victory unless you deal with the fact that these children are being indoctrinated from age zero to kill Jews, right? We, we see this, we see 14, 13, 12-year-old kids going and picking up guns and neither trying to murder Jews. Like, what what kind of warped society promotes that? And so getting rid of Hamas will not do anything in terms of a long-term solution unless we deal with the reality on the ground, which is that the Palestinian Authority and radical Islam in general is indoctrinating their next generation to be you know, Hamas 2.0. So that needs to be dealt with. Killing Hamas or destroying Hamas is not going to be enough. Middle East commentator Hillel Fuld there. In related news, it's being described as an explosion of hatred in the UK. More than 4,000 anti-Semitic incidents were recorded in Britain in 2023, with the sheer volume following on from the Hamas attacks of October the 7th. One of those incidents was at London's Soho Theatre, where Jewish attendees were left feeling unsafe to say the least by the night's act, comedian Paul Curry and members of his audience. Leahav Eitan was one of the victims. I haven't seen anything like it. It's it's very bizarre. So it's a non-verbal show, very physical humor. It's all like pantomime and, and music and, and very silly things. I think kind of like the appeal probably is that it does things that are usually aimed at children, but as an adult, you, you don't expect to go to the theater and, and then engage in a bread fight, right? N not necessarily the kind of humor I would go to see every day, but um, it wasn't bad, right? I, I found it entertaining. So when did the situation turn into something more sinister? Tell us exactly how it evolved. Um, towards the end of the of this one-hour show, the comedian took out a Ukraine flag from, from a box, followed by a Palestine flag. And then 
immediately puts them back in the in the in the box uh, and then moves on to the next thing so the, the show is like a lot of like short short bets uh one after the other um it, it felt very out of place and and for me when that happened towards the end of the show i i couldn't really enjoy the show anymore as as an israeli i really did not appreciate the comparison between palestine and ukraine i i i thought it has no place there and you know there was no disclaimer about this political statement being made like that's not how i wanted to, sp to spend my my evening so uh, five minutes later the the end of the show comes uh, i'm still in my head like pretty upset about uh, about what i just experienced and you know as as the show ended the crowd starts uh, starts clapping um and paul kind of encourage the crowd to to get on their feet and, and give a, a standing ovation. And for me and my friend, it was obvious that we're not going to participate in that. So we, we kept to our seats. We just held hands. We didn't clap. And Paul Curry, for the first time in this one-hour show, um, actually took to the mic and, and spoke to the audience. So he said, you know, thank you for coming to see my show, that, that kind of stuff. And, and then he just turned towards us. We were sitting like to, to the right of the stage, almost almost like behind the stage. So he fully turns all the way towards us and says, "Thanks to the, uh, thank you to these two for not standing up and clapping." And then he, he sort of sort of lingers on us as if like waiting for us to to apologize or to like get on our feet and clap for him, which we weren't going to do, frankly. So when he kept like lingering on us, I I said back to him, uh, "Thank you for the Palestine flag," uh, hoping that that would just give him the explanation that he seemed to seek uh, for why we we didn't join in, right? Like we just don't don't agree with that political statement. Uh, but for, for some reason, he, he decided to keep the dialogue going. He, he muttered that that was part of the show. He asked, uh, asked me if I was being sarcastic. Uh, still, to the mic in front of the entire audience, he asked me if I enjoyed the show, uh, to which I said that yes, up until that point. And then he kind of just just really turned. He, he started screaming to the microphone that he's from Belfast and he knows everything about ceasefire and started chanting ceasefire now uh, and, and then shouted at us to get the F out of, of the show, uh, to get to get the hell out of there, started calling us, calling us names, swearing and and started to get the, the crowds to to kind of boo and joining in on, on the chanting. Now, unfortunately, because of where we were set, the only way to get to the exit from the theater was actually through the stage. So we had to walk on the stage in front of Paul and he uh, at that point took took out the Palestine flag again from, from his box, started waving it at us, swearing at us uh, that we'll have to like pass and see, see that flag again on our way out, and started trying to get the crowd to chant with him, ceasefire now and, and free Palestine. And, and, and some people in the crowd did join in. Some people were booing us. Some, like some guy from the first row shouted shame at us. And then from the corner of my eye, I could see like rushing towards the exit to do other couples that I later found out were Jewish as well. How did it make you feel when that chanting begun? How unsafe did you feel and bewildered? But what was going through your mind? I think bewildered is is the right word. Um, I I thought to myself, like, I, I don't understand what game Paul Curry is playing at. I, I thought he was making the situation quite dangerous for us. Uh, it, it was pretty obvious to me that if we... If if we lingered in that room at that moment and refused to leave, then it would come to physical violence. And and to be frank, it was quite scary passing right in front of him because he, he behaved in a very violent way. He, he behaved as if he was drunk. 
Um, and, and, and I thought it wouldn't be past him to throw a punch at us. So it was very obvious that we needed to evacuate ourselves from, from that room as quickly as possible. And how do you feel now you've had some time to process what's happened? Details today that there has been an explosion in anti-Semitism in this country and record offences. Obviously, there's been some response to the events of October the 7th and the response to that. But how unsafe do you feel as a Jewish person in Britain right now? I, I, I feel pretty unsafe. I, I don't know about Britain as a whole. I live in London. I have been, I've been living in London for the past five years. The past four months, we could feel the escalation immediately. There's just a feeling of intimidation in the air. And, and it's, all, it's everywhere, right? It's on social media. It's in the streets. I, I live in Tower Hamlets. There's a Palestine flag in like every two meters. And those pro-Palestine protests every Saturday, you know, for these ones, at least like we, we've learned and now just not to leave our houses on, on Saturdays during the day. But sometimes they just do random, random protests everywhere. They came to my workplace two days ago, both outside and inside. They attacked another Jewish Israeli physically in the office at work. It's, it's, it's hard to escape. And you see so much, so many lies, so much hate, so much incitement. And one sentiment that I, that, that I keep hearing from, from a lot of Jewish people in, in London is that they feel Israel would be safer right now. Than, than London, which is crazy, right? Like it's it's a country in a state of, of war, of very active war with, with you know, rockets and, and whatnot. And that feels safer than London. So what's your feeling about staying in this country? How confident are you that you're going to remain in London? Or are you now thinking about moving somewhere else to live? It, look, we, we haven't decided even even before everything started if, if London is like the place for us, for us long term. We, we like the city, we enjoy the city, we like this country. I, I don't think it, it's at that point where you have to we, you have to flee, right? Like there are some signs, but I don't think we're like in 1939 quite yet. I have a lot of hopes for, for this country. Despite everything that's been happening, I do have optimism here, you know, and, and I, I don't want to give up on, on, on Britain. I, I don't think Britain should give, give up either. A strong united Britain is, is, is actually important for the world. And, and I can tell you that like in, in Israel, people are seeing this anti-Semitism in London and they're quite bewildered as well. For us, the UK has always been some, some beacon of light and hope and people are not really understanding how of all places, London became such a hotspot for anti-Semitism. There has been absolutely zero communication from, from Paul Curry himself. I, I don't think he's made a single public response as well. All I can say to him is that what he did was extremely violent and extremely dangerous, extremely uncalled for and unprofessional, and I think he should do better. Liahav Eitan there speaking about his horrific experience at the Soho Theatre. That brings an end to this week's episode of Israel's War on Terror. You can search for more installments wherever you typically get your podcasts. Please let us know in the comments if you have any issues you'd like us to tackle, and we'll do our best to take them on in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening.